This is IAQ Radio, indoor air quality radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. We've got a great show to you today. We're, we're, our guest is coming from down under. Oliver Threlfall will be joining us. So he's the CEO of Stomatic of Australia. Looking forward to a great show talking about how the, the big dogs in the restoration industry, the global restoration industry play, and hopefully our global restoration industry watchdog will be joining us. But before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. IAQ Radio Platinum sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. I also want to thank our gold sponsors, Particles Plus, Healthy Indoors Magazine, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, and AEML Inc. Laboratory. And, of course, our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, and the Restoration Industry Association. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to Doug Conan, Aerotech Environmental Dayton, Ohio, who was first to answer last week's IAQ radio trivia question. He identified Jay Schaefer as the individual widely acknowledged as the father of the tiny house movement. The IAQ radio trivia question for today, February 22nd, 2019, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company, providing unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here's today's trivia question. Name the two Texas businessmen who in 1968 founded the business, which would later become known as Steamatic. Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. Okay, over the past 30 years, Oliver Threlfall has been totally dedicated to the cleaning and restoration industry. He, uh, back in 1986, um, he commenced the Stomatic in Melbourne, Victoria. And at, the, at that point, he uh, completed a bunch of IICRC training, did some specialized microbial and bioaerosol remediation training under Dr. Tullis and Dr. Thulman at Duke University. Stomatic was formed in 1986 in Australia, following requests from underwriters to establish proven claims reduction services that have been demonstrated overseas. They have then transformed an established cleaning company into a specialist cleaning technologies firm. Oliver is the CEO, a very busy man down under, and uh, we welcome him to the show today. Welcome, Oliver. Yeah, good morning. Good Good morning, morning. indeed. It certainly is morning. It's 4 a.m. Understood. (laughs) (laughs) Understood. Early morning start. We appreciate it. We've got a nice uh, group of people that listen from from Australia, so we're looking forward to a great show. I want to go for just a moment. And when we were talking before the show, you mentioned that um, you have seven franchises, uh, stomatic franchises in Australia, and there are a total of 36. Did I get that right? Yeah, yeah. We've got seven company owned. So uh, our model is we want to practice what we preach as well. And so they're in our capital cities. And then there's uh, about 30 franchises in regional towns throughout Australia. Are there any other large um, franchise-type operations in, in Australia? No, not really. Uh, a couple of the big players have come over and have a look and turned around and said maybe the market's not quite big enough. You know, hmm. we're, a, we're a big continent, but there's only 25, 26 million people here. So it's, it's not a lot of people. Interesting. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about the, you know, the global business it is, or let's say how and why is restoration a global business? Okay. I think we, we found it's uh, why it's become such a global business is that uh, our customers have gone global. 
and we're seeing it like a consolidation of the insurance industry, but more and more also the end users. So I'm not sure if it's the same in North America, but we're finding that the end user is now determining on the larger losses anyhow what or who the, the vendor is they want to use or the contractor they want to use. So, you know, if you get a good relationship with a telco or a big institution, they seem to take you international. So, you know, when we started in 86, there's no way we thought we'd be doing jobs in, in Africa and South America, but here we are today, 30 years later, doing them. So you're doing jobs from Australia and other parts of the, of the world? Are you doing anything in, like, the Asian area? Yeah, yeah, we've worked in China, we've worked in Hong Kong, uh, South Africa, uh, Africa as we speak, and, and probably doing another one. We've got one in Colombo at the moment, which is pretty exciting. So, yeah, I mean, it's um, how, how we make that work is obviously we're not the big international player that people would think, but uh, we've got a lot of friends around the world, and, and we make sure we bring the experts with us local experts half the time you know i mean maybe later in the show you could tell us a little bit more about some of those specific projects that sounds really interesting uh but but before we do let's let's learn a little bit more about stomatic in australia what what is the history of stomatic in australia okay it um it almost started for me by default i was uh the friend and neighbor of the fisher family hans fisher who used to regularly go to the RAA conferences, as you know. And uh, anyhow, one of our loss adjusters was at a conference over in Hawaii and saw, I think it was BMS Cat at the time, doing a presentation on disaster recovery. And at the time, the loss adjuster came back and no one was doing it in Australia. No one, literally. Maybe a little bit of water damage here and there. And so Hans uh, came to our family and we... We had a long chat and we then came, went back to North America and recognising that they were the leaders in the pack at the time, uh, went and visited lots of different companies and got a bond with Steamatic in Fort Worth and uh, took on the franchise rights for the country there in 1986. Interesting. Cliff, let me turn it over to you for a moment. Thanks, thanks. Um, what are the unique characteristics um, of us? of the Australian disaster restoration market? I, I think what I find that, you know, because obviously we, we come to North America and Europe to learn a lot. The big differential we're seeing is, is actually our policies are so different. And uh, what I mean by that is carpets are actually a content here in Australia. Hmm. So, you know, when you go to a loss in Australia and they've got, you know, typically the insured will ring in and tell their insurance company, oh, quick, come over, I've got wet carpet. They never say I've got a wet building. They will say I've got wet carpets. And so you're called in on a content loss and it might be $40,000 worth of cover. And so they're very, very tight on the restoration in the water damage world. Uh, more and more of the structure's kicking in, but it's usually the contents policy that pulls you in. So the differential with, you know, North America, you might be pulled in and you've got a $300,000 home policy covering your carpets in there and you get a $3,000 bill. It's, it's not a, a scare to the insurers. Whereas over here, it's a high proportion of their coverage. It, it is, um, you know, the, United, the North American market's primarily synthetic carpet. Is your market primarily synthetic carpet or with all the sheep over there? Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that, that, that's an exact, uh, that's exactly what it used to be. We, we ha hung on to, uh, Wool carpets a lot longer than the rest of the world, and we still have them. But yes, absolutely, synthetics taking Mostly over. Synthetic. Just cheap, cool. easy to clean, high wearing. Okay, cool. So uh, maybe you know, I'm I'm not a uh, restoration guru like you two, but just to help me understand a little better, Oliver, you the carpet is considered contents, and I'm wondering. So will there oftentimes be two policies you're dealing with, one for whomever owns the building and the other for the tenant in the building that, that has insurance on their contents, including their carpet? Absolutely. Um, and it doesn't have to be a tenant. It can be a homeowner. And to be complicate things, quite often it might be two different carriers, one on the structure and one on the contents. So 
then the debate comes off who's drying and what are they drying for. Traditionally over here, the contents policy, believe it or not, has for the last 30 years, has typically dried the building just on the basis I've got to dry the building to put the carpets back down. But now they're starting to see, probably in the last five years, that that, that cost must go to the structural side. And that's where the coverage is. In the U.S., you know, typical homeowners coverage, you know, if I had a home and it was worth a half a million dollars is what I insured the structure for, typically the contents in the U.S. would be insured for half of that value, you know, 250000 And then we would have a 10% coverage for what they'd call an appurtenant structure garage or some sort of outbuilding or, or, or whatever. Is yours similar to that where the contents would be insured for approximately half the structure or? Oh, no, no, it's very, very rare. I mean, we've, we've looked at some of the statistics and uh, comparing it to North America. I think your average water damage claims, maybe two and a half, three thousand dollars $3,000. Okay. Uh, in Australia, it's more like 1200 Australian dollars. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. So that, cause the coverage just isn't there. I mean, a typical contents policy might be forty thousand dollars, forty to sixty thousand dollars. Do you have full replacement coverage? So, if I had if I had an old sofa and somehow it was damaged by water, will they give me a new one? Or do yes. okay, so it's full yeah. replacement. Okay. New, yeah, they call it new for old here. Okay, and we're, we're we're getting hit now. I don't know if North America is, but the contractors here with some of our insurers. Are, are being told to offer lifetime warranty on our work. Okay. That's tough. <laughs> Isn't that, um, yeah. a, a lot of the same carriers in Australia as, as you see in, in the uh, North America? Uh, no. We have two dominant players, uh, uh, IAG and Suncorp, and I think collectively they've got like 48% of the market. Uh, particularly the domestic market. We've got, uh, yeah, we've got the Zurichs, the, Ch- the Chubbs, the IAGs, um, AIGs, I should say. IAG is an Australian company. Um, but they're, they're more typically the commercial. You know, one of the big complaints we hear in, in the States right now is about uh, third parties, uh, you know, looking at the, uh, the bill and then trying to, you know, knock, knock, uh, knock some money off the bill. Are you, are you getting these t- third party organizations uh, coming into Australia too? <clears throat> uh, you're, you're referring just to TPAs, I assume. Um, yes. We had a, we had a big run of them probably five, ten, uh, five to 10 years ago. They were very, very dominant. Um, but as I was alluding to it, it's a very, very big country. It's a continent. And to service everywhere, even through a TPA, is pretty hard. And we've seen them fall out, fall away over the last two to three years. More and more, the insurers are setting up their own panel and, in, in many cases, actually having fixed square meterage or, in your case, square feet uh, rates for your services. So we don't, for instance, and, and North Americans, when I talk to them, are, uh, amazed about this, but ExactAware doesn't even exist in Australia. Hmm. They've been tried. It's just the insurers. I mentioned there's two dominant insurance. They haven't taken it up, and if they don't take it up, it doesn't get legs. How is the trade of disaster restoration looked upon by clients and insurance companies in Australia? Yeah, it's... um. It's embarrassingly uh, poorly looked upon, to be honest. They don't recognise. They'll recognise a builder in the restoration area as a trade, but when you talk about a restoration company, company that's dealing with contents, they don't seem to give us the appreciation we deserve. And um, I think that's one of the biggest catalysts behind why many of us here in Australia have been pushing RAA over here because we, we have a chapter over here now, but we, we need an independent voice to talk to insurers and talk to media. Um, for instance, if I stood up and, and really took an insurance company on and discussed these things with them, the reality is I'd just see my alloc- allocations fall away. Mm-hmm. So we, we've got to have this, this independent body to start talking and, and giving the restorers some respect as a trade, as you say. 
Well, well you know, I think a, a follow-up on that. Um, what about IICRC standards? Uh, are they known, trusted, relied upon by contractors and insurance carriers in Australia or, um, or not? Uh, that, that's an interesting one. I would say that they're, they're known of. Everyone knows them. The, um, the, the carriers recognize it, but they don't really insist on it. Uh, they might insist on it in their, you know, there's a, to get on a panel, you have to go through a tender process and it might say some byline in that your technicians must be IICRC trained and certified. I think it's more the restorers themselves uh, recognise it and are making sure that their, their, their staff are actually trained in it. Of course, there's some companies only tra train the bosses, um, but I think it's important the actual crew out doing the work are the ones that get trained. I'm just curious, uh, here in the States, as I understand it, the, the restoration company works for the, the building owner, uh, not the insurance company, although that can be argued. Obviously, people you know, have, have kind of divided loyalty. Does it work that way in Australia as well? Uh, yeah, it does. I mean, the, the legal contract is always with the, with the building owner or the owner of the contents. Um, the reality, though, is that the insurance company sends you the check. Mm -hmm. So we don't, we don't have this uh, co-signing of checks here in Australia yet, which is uh, a blessing. In fact, we're quite blessed, some of our insurance companies, and there'll be some jealous restorers out there. Some of our insurance companies under contract if we invoice before four o'clock, you get paid before four o'clock. If you invoice after four o'clock, you're paid tomorrow. So the cash flow with the big insurers is good. The rates aren't so good. Cliff? Um, what threats, if any, do you see in Australia to the restoration and industry in general? Uh, I think... Well, it might even talk to the IICRC again. The, there seems to be a, uh, a tendency now to say that the builder should run the whole claim and not have a builder and a restorer. So, you know, there's plenty of uh, companies over here that do building and restoration. But what we're finding is that the, the, I guess the threat to the restoration industry is a builder by nature likes to build. And we're seeing more and more things being replaced that we, we don't understand why they are today or being stripped out rather than dried. What about on the fire side? Go ahead. Uh, I think the biggest threat there is that uh, everything's so cheap now. I mean, you know, we used to do, uh, over the 30 years, we used to have TVs and everything down the back being restored. We still have some, but... You know, they're almost a throwaway item nowadays. You can buy them so cheaply and labor's gone up for the last 30 years, but the product cost has just diminished. So you're not adding value in a lot of places anymore. But you know, you know, in the U.S., we've seen contents restoration as a big growth area. And, you know, when I entered the industry uh, in the 1970s, there were some markets in the United States, and if I'm not mistaken, Dallas uh, was one of them, where there was a separation between contractors and restorers, and that, you know, if, if the contractors would do the building, uh, demolition, they would do the redecorating and the painting, and then a restoration company, you know, would do the restoration, and oftentimes that was done off-site. They would actually go in, pack up all the contents and so on and so forth, take it back to their uh, facility. And a lot of the restoration companies had huge, huge facilities. In many ways, they were more like a moving company that had cleaning capability than, uh -huh. uh, you know, than they were really a restoration company. Uh, I'm wondering whether that was ever like that in Australia. Is it like it in, in Australia now? And the only reason I mention it is it's going back that way, you know, in the United States where we also have a lot of stuff that's thrown away, but there's stuff that people like and they want and, you know, they get sentimentally attached to it. And uh, I think we're now 
able to restore more things than we ever did uh, before. So, uh, you know, here it seems to be growing. I, look, I totally agree with you, and I can't talk for the whole international steamatic group, but, you know, over the 30 years, I can't tell you how many times my insurance companies have asked me to go into the building side, um, and I've just always said no. I've always believed there's a demarcation between the two, and, uh, yeah, we do. We have large facilities. Uh, my f- factory in Melbourne, for instance, is about... 65, 70,000 square feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's just dedicated to contents restoration mm-hmm. and a lot of storage while the builders are still building, obviously. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we're seeing more and more in, in the soft fabric restoration side of things and some of the uh, high-end electronics. There's, a, there's still a, a market there to be serviced. Joe? I'm curious what the um, labor conditions are like. Is it is it tight is it tough to get help is it yep. better or worse than it was say five or ten years ago no i'd say it's a lot tougher and i think the um the other difficulty i think is it's the labor market's moving all the time now uh they tend to want to come they'll do all their iocrc courses and then they'll decide after three years i'm going to go on to another career and do something else so it is tight it's um, the labour here is the average wage here for a restoration con, uh, technician is about twenty five dollars an hour. Mm-hmm. So it's um, you know it, it's it's good wages, but um, it's still hard to keep them. Uh, you know, in all honesty, and I'd be the same. I didn't wake up when I was eighteen and said, you know what, I want to be. I want to be a cleaner and do that when I grow up. I mean, I've loved it for thirty years, but you've got to make it sexy somehow. So I think the um, bringing new technologies into the business and getting people involved in that and offering them a bit of travel with their work does attract a good caliber of, of technician, but it is hard to, uh, to find in a tight market. And with, with the, the people you do have, how do you retain those folks? I mean, is, is there a lot of people trying to poach your people and move from one company to another and, do you have to offer any special incentives to keep them on? Uh, I think there's two sides to that. I, I would say, in all honesty, that the Australian restoration market are fairly good at not doing the poaching. There's always some. There's always some, but I think most... We're a very small market, don't forget, and I think everyone knows each other. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have people poaching. I, I, you know, I think at Steamatic side... We've always just said, you know, it's a hard job, but let's make it fun. So we, we work hard, but we also party hard and have a good time. Okay. Uh, you know, I've got quite a few staff with me for 25 years. So, You know, in the U.S., um, the travel that's done in, in most situations, I, I would say, ends up being catastrophe-related and ends up being hurricane-related. And... A lot of times, uh, you know, experiences, people can only do this for, you know, like a couple of weeks, two weeks, three weeks, and they're totally burnt out because they're working really long hours. Uh, they're working really, really hard. Uh, it seems to me that some of the stuff that you guys are doing is a little more sexy and a little more exotic than that. You know, you're going to different countries and, you know, doing some some different things rather than, you know, sucking water and, uh, you know, tearing yep. out drywall. So. Well, there's a, there's a bit of both. I mean, it probably wouldn't hit North America, but we've got a town up in Queensland that's uh, went under by two metres of water, um, a town called Townsville. So there's, there's several thousand claims up there now, and everyone's up there doing exactly what you said, doing it tough. It's 80% relative humidity outside and 80 degrees Fahrenheit probably. Mm-hmm. So it's, and crocodiles in the houses here and there. So <laughs> that's, that's pretty tough. But, yeah, I mean, look, we all do our yards in those, and uh, there's another cyclone about to hit um, this weekend, I believe. But, um, yeah, you, no, you're quite right. And then there's the, the sexy jobs, as you say. But even in Australia, it doesn't have to be overseas. Because of our model, I, I guess, because we, we've got regional franchisees, they tend to get large losses and then 
the other franchisees and head office and my offices come in and help. So we're traveling within Australia, even on what we'd call a, a singular catastrophe, a, a factory fire or something like that. And um, they all become good friends over a period of time when they're traveling like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. You do a lot of commercial work and, and I'm, I'm curious about a couple of things. One is, do you um, commonly have a third party indoor environmental professional coming into uh, project for the building owner? And secondly, if they do, um, what type of clearance criteria do they have for these projects? Do they just want it to be visually clean? Do they do some type of sampling? Um, do they, are they using ATP? Um, and, you know, or is it a mixed bag? No, no, I think, um, look at the domestic level, unless it's uh, identified very early as a, a mold contamination they leave it up to the restorer basically to clean. But um, on larger commercial losses and where there is mould involved, there's always an industrial hygienist involved now or an IAQ specialist. And quite, quite frankly, a lot of the time, they're actually now drawing up the scope of works for the contractor for us to come in and do the work. Okay. Um, I feel like that trend might go the other way a little bit. I think they're... Uh, they, they are analysing, they're doing swabs, they're doing air tests on everything. And it's, it's, I think some of the insurers are now seeing that as a big ticket on some of the smaller claims. You know, you might have a $10,000 restoration job, but it's got a $3,500 independent clearance on it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think, they'll, I think the tendency will go away from doing air samples. I, I may be wrong, but I think they're just going to move more and more to swabs. Well, and you, you mentioned they help rate the protocol as well. Um, have you had good luck with that? Do they, do they understand your business well enough to write a good protocol for a water damage restoration? Yeah, I think they do. I th initially, I don't think they did, but uh, they've, um, they're now attending the RAA conferences and, and some of the training that some of the IICRC people do here. And uh, we've got our own IICRC trainer and, we, we let them come in and do our courses as well. We're, we're not a protective company here in Australia. We think the more people know, the more work that will come. Um, often people ask me who's our biggest competitor, and, and quite frankly, I think it's ignorance of what a restoration company can do. Uh, I think that's our biggest uh, competitor over here. Let me get one more technical question in, then I think we'll, we'll probably go to halftime, Oliver. Um, here in the States, I noticed John Lapointer was on earlier. He may have dropped off, but one of the issues they're having in Florida is um, miscategorizing or intentionally pushing things into Category 3 losses when maybe that isn't appropriate um, because, you know, they, they're going to be able to do a little more, uh, you know, make a little bit more money on the project. Are you, are you seeing things like that? Mm. No, I, to be honest, I haven't really seen that. I think um, some of the builders maybe push it that way a little bit more um, if they want to get into the strip outside. Uh, but I, I don't see it in the restoration industry, or I haven't to date. Um, yes, I, I have seen it where the insureds has got an independent, maybe a restorer to come in and act on their behalf against a restorer. They'll tend to push it that way because they want replacement. But, um, you know, it's pretty hard to convince people it's category three if it's not. Yeah, they've got well proven. <laughs> water coming through uh, a roof leak, for instance, um, you know, because it's been in contact with, you know, it came from outside, it's gone through all the contents on the way into the home, and they're trying to claim that's a Category 3 in some cases. I, I don't know if that'll last or um, if it's just unique to Florida. Yeah, it might be unique. I, I think it's um, the danger and that we've had that here in Australia as well is I think if people are going to start over-servicing losses or over-categorizing it in, in this case that you're talking about, eventually you're going to push the carriers away from even calling people in. 
And we've seen examples of that over here in Australia where one of our major insurers that had, uh, I think they've got currently about 26% of the insurance market. They came out and actually told the industry, we're not going to restore any more carpets. We're replacing them all. Now, they backed down on that, but they were doing it because it was it was getting over-serviced. People were charging more to restore carpets than the, they were even worth. Interesting. Let's uh, stop for halftime. We want to thank our sponsors. When we come back to the second half over, I think we'd like to talk a little bit more about some of the specific jobs you're doing around the world. Sure. And, and uh, we'll pull up some photos that you sent us. So we'll be back in about 90 seconds with Oliver Throwfall. Uh, Stematic CEO, Stematic of Australia. Very interesting so far. IAQ Radio Platinum sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Gold sponsors are Particles Plus engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters and air quality monitoring instrumentation. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And AEML Laboratories, free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at AEMLinc.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at WolfSense.com. Association sponsors are the Indoor Air Quality Association, a multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Learn more at iaqa.org and RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. Okay, we're back to the second half of our interview. Oliver Throwfall, let's. Um, we, we talked a little bit about the fact that you do restoration around the uh, around the world. Um, you know, uh, talking about jobs in Africa and, and, and up in uh, Asia. Let's uh, first start with the largest project you've ever completed. What uh, what would be the scope on that project? Internationally or in Australia, the largest. Either way. Yeah. Probably the largest was uh, one we did just recently, uh, just before Christmas here in Australia, actually. Uh, it was a uniform supplier for the country, you know, supplied uniforms for banks, airlines and the like, and pretty well had a, a dominant market share. They had a small, very small fire and uh, the associated soot and uh, water went throughout the place. They had something like one point four, 1.3 million garments hanging in this building at the time. And of course, their issue was that they had to supply these garments to their customers. So we, we worked with them, obviously, on the structure and the, the deodorization and the drying of the structure. But then we had to work with them to ensure that they could continually supply garments whilst they, they got replacements in. So we had to probably do 20% of that, which is maybe, you know, 200,000 garments where it, we had to work with IAQ specialists because each garment, they didn't hide the fact that these garments had been damaged. Each garment had to be processed, uh, bioswept and, and cleared and then given to the new uh, recipient of these clothing with a certificate that says this has been restored and when we get new supply, you'll get it back. You'll, you'll hand it back and we'll give you a replacement. So it was only a temporary. But, you know, that job was, was a massive job. I mean, you can imagine the logistics of moving that quantity of garments. Wow. And then uh, the company themselves also, which, which and given their dues, they also said, well, we don't want, uh, you know, one million garments going to landfill either. So then they engaged us to package it and take it away, have it incinerated back in, and turned, sorry, not incinerated, but turned into a brick to be used to burn and create energy. So 
they, you know, more and more in Australia and I assume in North America, our insurers are very concerned about landfill. Hmm. It's a big policy issue. How did they clear this, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, what sort of, you know, what were they looking for in, in the garments? I think they were just looking if we, whether there was any trace, obviously, of the soots and odours and, and whether it was VOCs. I mean, it, there was no asbestos or anything like that in the building. So it was really, I think they were more concerned about odour than anything else. Um, and, you know, the um, IAQ specialists that were involved, they, they probably sampled 5% of those garments. So if you, you know, again... That's a lot of garments <laughs> to do a test yeah. on. Yeah, but do you know what they tested for or not? No, I, I don't, to be honest. Uh, another project okay. manager ran that job. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I can find out and let you know off air at some point. The term bioswept, what, what does that mean? Uh, it's a piece of technology. It's available in, in the U.S. Um, we, uh, it's basically – it's not a hydroxyl machine. It, it's basically a uh, – yeah, a, hydrogen peroxide vapor being given off. I see. It's, it's pretty effective. Okay. But it still relies on, obviously, surface contact. Um, Cliff, go ahead. Okay. Um, in the United States, in some parts of our country, we have a phenomena known as a public adjuster who is a person retained by the policyholder to represent their interests. And I know that some of these public adjusting firms do – uh, operate globally and internationally. I'm wondering whether public adjusters do have a presence, uh, you know, in Australia and uh, what, you know, and that, if you've had to interact with these guns. Um, absolutely. Yeah, we've got, uh, I don't think we have the internationals here yet. Um, we've got two local players and uh, they're actually, um, when I talk to my North American counterparts, maybe different. They, they, they're very cooperative and work with the restoration and, and the building contractors quite well. Mm -hmm. um, I know in some states, for instance, in the US, particularly Florida, it seems like the public adjusters are there before the emergency uh, right. restorers and the mitigators are there. So that makes it very difficult. You, you To date, and touch wood, I have never seen one on a domestic loss ever. Um, they've only really are chasing... Yeah, in, on our policies, we have a, um, on our typical industrial policy, we have what they call a claims preparation cost. And uh, in there, so there might be, on a commercial claim, there might be $200,000 as a, a line item, and that's what the public adjuster will use to prepare the claim. So you don't see that in a domestic situation here yet. I don't know Never that we have that about. either. <laughs> you know, in, in terms of methods... Um, are there any strictly or any restoration methods that you know of that originated, you know, in Australia that um, you can kind of share with the rest of the world? Anything that you guys do on any diff different technically, chemically? God, I'd like to say we do, but I, I don't think I can't think of one offhand. I really can't. I'm sure there's there'll be one very good restore somewhere that's doing something different, but it hasn't been patented or pushed out. But, uh, you know, typically we have uh, – North America has always been, we believe, five years in front of uh, us here. And I, I guess for the last 20 to 30 years, we've travelled North America and more and more Europe now as well and seeing what they're doing there. Okay. What sort of technologies, uh, you know, are the, are the newest things that you've brought over? Uh, well, the, the latest one that we're using is laser cleaning. Mm -hmm. uh, cleaning the light. Yeah, it's, um, it, it's a game changer. There's no doubt about it. I mean, we all know it's been around for 30 years. But um, the production levels have gone from, you know, doing one square metre a day to doing four square metres an hour. Mm -hmm. um, so it makes it all of a sudden economical. So, um, you know, we've been... Uh, Again, it's, you, you can't use one machine for everything and you wouldn't want to pretend it's the, uh, the, uh, the best thing on everything. But in the cultural, in churches and, and stone and paintings and things like this, it's an absolute game changer. It's, uh, there's absolutely no degradation to the substrate whatsoever. You can dial that unit to clean whatever you want. In fact, I can take soot off 
paint or I can take soot off and take the first layer of paint on and leave the second layer still there. So that's what the customer wants. Just, uh, you know, I think to, to help some of our listeners, what sort of cost is attributed to that piece uh, of equipment? Uh, the typical one we, we're doing, which are fairly powerful ones, is about 150000 US dollars a unit. Okay, gotcha. Uh, but the associated charge out and the results, I mean, it, it justifies it. There's no doubt about it. I mean, Absolutely. our first job that we're... Um, hoping to do is is a, a major institution in Australia, Sydney Harbour Bridge. So, you know, if you get those sort of jobs, it, it's pretty attractive. Yeah. Oh, you, you sent us some photos I, I want to pull up. One was a, uh, I believe you said it was a silica job. I'm, I'm, uh, yeah. Can you talk to listeners a little bit about this particular project? Because silica has been a hot topic in the United States here recently. We have a new OSHA silica rule uh, with respect to exposure for people doing the type of work like what your guys were doing here. I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about this photo and this particular project. Yeah, that was a project in uh, South Australia, which is uh, one of our states. Um, it was a large uh, storage silo on a wharf, which was full of silica, as you alluded to. But the silica is... Um, was up in the ceiling space, down in all the conveyor belts everywhere. And when, when we were quoting it, it was, you know, there was probably, God knows, 300 tonnes of it in there. Uh, they, they cleared all that out, but then they wanted this site cleaned, ready to go back to take uh, grain or food grain for export. So this was a big, big job. And whilst the guys looked like they've... Uh, just filthy in there. Don't you worry. They all had their PPE on all the time in this f facility. It was a it was a, a nasty job, and uh, the clearances were tough on this, as you can appreciate. Hmm. What sort of methods did you utilize to do it? Do you know? Yeah, I mean, but basically, this was nothing glorified here. This was hard HEPA vacuuming. Um, you know, obviously big commercial vacuums, but um, it was predominantly HEPA vacuuming and then wet washing upon completion. Mm -hmm. It was about a six-week project. It was a big job. Wow. John, go to another photo. Let's, let's pull a couple up and see if we can't get Oliver to comment on them. Okay, here we've got, uh, looks like you're getting ready to, to ship uh, some <laughs> equipment or materials to a project. Yeah, this was, uh, we had... Uh, uh, some major floods down in Tasmania, and Tasmania is a state of Australia. Uh, it probably has about 500,000 people live on it down south. Um, it got hit very, very badly with some storms or a catastrophe, but the only way into Tasmania is by ferry or air, and all the ports were full of debris, and the ferries weren't going to run for five days to a week. And so we engaged a local uh, company, Vortex Air here, and uh, started shipping our gear down because we wanted to be on the ground working the, before our competition, but also um, just to look after our, our customers. Were you able to recover your costs in order to do that? Did, did people, you know, the clients appreciate uh, the costs or did you just eat it all? Uh, we, we, we pretty, you know, we, we probably wore it and used it as a marketing piece. I mean, that's a nice marketing photo, isn't it? Right. But <laughs> look, I, I, I would be surprised if anyone in any catastrophe can recover all their costs. Okay. Yeah. Huh. Your margins fall away. You've got the volume, but your margins fall away, I'm sure. John, got another one there. But we, there is an interesting uh, photo here. Oliver, what's going on with this one? Uh, that was a couple of years ago. That was actually the final... The, the rinse clean, if you like, at the end, this was a shopping centre up in uh, Queensland. Uh, it's about 30,000 square metres, say 300,000 square feet, something like that, where we had to literally strip all the plaster out to about two metres, uh, desk and dry the facility, decontaminate it, again, work with an IAQ hygienist on there to get clearances. And uh, our customer believes that we probably saved them two to three months which in a shopping centre is significant BI. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. I'm wondering, is um, mold covered or excluded in Australia? Yeah. To date, it's still included, which is uh, it's, a, it's a great question because, again, that's one of the reasons we were pushing the RAA down here because mold was seen as the, you know, the, the mold gold, as I think you guys called it there for a while. And we were starting to see domestic average claims go from, you know, three to $5,000 up to $25,000 on a water damage, hmm. you know, and a water damage that happened today, you know, and all of a sudden it's a mold claim. So we, we, we spent a lot of time trying to, uh, with the RAA and others trying to convince the industry, you know, slow down because you, you're, you're going to exclude mold from the policy. If you keep this up, you're going <laughs> Choke out the golden goose, huh? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So there's still a lot of talk about it, and I, it's fair to say that mould is the carrier's biggest concern here at the moment. They're very, very aware of it. Um, they're, they're trying to do that. They're trying to get uh, IAQ specialists to come in and train their loss adjusters as well. But, you know, you guys are professionals and I don't believe that you can train someone in three hours to be a mold specialist. Very tough. What, um, and I noticed part of this question was also about the, the pricing. I, I believe you mentioned earlier the insurance companies aren't as uh, involved in the pricing. Like, you know, you've got Xactimate here and so forth. You, you don't have that same issue in, in Australia or do you? Uh, we have the, the carriers on the um, – most of the l large carriers have panels for the domestic work, and they'll dictate the rates to you. Um, but it's like everything else. It, it's very hard for them to dictate every rate to them. And, and to be honest, we talk to the carriers and we tell them, you know, it's like a balloon. If you keep pushing us too cheap here, something's going to come there. I mean, the business has to survive. So, mm -hmm. you know – they, it's it's virtually impossible for them to come up with a unit rate that covers everything. Um, so, yep, it, they pushed it and squeezed it. As I said earlier, I think our average water damage is about twelve or thirteen hundred dollars in Australia, which is when you got twenty five dollars an hour man hours, it's it's tough. <laughs> it sounds like though there's a pretty good relationship between the insurance companies and the restoration companies and that, that you at least talk to each other and not through each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, most of our insurers, we would probably meet with them. The most of our panel insurers, we would meet with them every month and they've got good relationship managers and, and they will listen. They will listen. If you can give them a good case, of course, they're going to protect their indemnity dollar and they want to keep that uh, as cheap as they can because, um, you know, that's their job, I guess. But um, it, it would be unfair in Australia to say that an insurer company doesn't want to pay its claim. They want to pay their claim. There's no doubt about that. They just don't want to make sure that they're not taken advantage of. John, you know, go ahead. Let's, let's I was going to say, you know, we've, talk, we've talked about, you know, some, you know, your largest projects and some of the things that you've done. Uh, you know, in other countries, um, what would the most interesting project be or the project that you're most proud of or both? Uh, I think the probably the legacy pro project for me was we did, uh, like Australia is made up of uh, different states. So the state of uh, one of our states had a major water damage in their land titles. So all the maps that dictated everyone's title were underwater. Mm -hmm. And that went back to sort of uh, when Captain Cook arrived. So there was some old, old historic ones in there. And we had to uh, freeze those. There was no large vacuum freeze drying facilities in the country at the time. Mm -hmm. We froze those and then worked with conservators and went around and bought uh, five or six small freeze dryers, little, um, that only did about 16 archive boxes at a time. Yeah. Right. And that, that was like a three-and-a-half-year project. But they got all their uh, their paper copies of their land titles back and were ecstatic with the results. And uh, that led me to then go and uh, commission a, a large vacuum freeze dryer for Australia. I was never going to do that again. <laughs> 16 boxes at a time. 
I think we had a photo of a larger one here. Uh, yeah, there we go. Is this a, would you would consider a larger freeze dry unit? No, uh, that's that's a large one for the southern hemisphere. That does about three hundred and sixty four boxes a cycle. Um, interestingly, though, we went to North America. We went to lots of people. No one really wanted to assist us uh, in building one of these. So we ended up going to a company in New Zealand in Blenheim that made really, really little freeze dryers and took the technology and, and mashed it up to a bigger unit. And uh, it's, been a, it's been a mainstay of our business for the last 10 years. Interesting. I think we got one other photo I want to put up here, John. Yeah, this one here, Oliver. <laughs> yeah, another good marketing shop, but that was uh, the Bundaberg floods, I think, a couple of years ago. And that boat is just, uh, it, it's several miles inland, and wow. it shouldn't be. <laughs> so I, to, it amazes me, the 2011 floods here in Brisbane, which were our biggest probably event that I've been involved in, it, it's uncanny the power of water you know i've seen cnc machines thrown around like dolls like this it, it's it's it, when the run when the waters run here they really run hmm. and I'm, I'm wondering are you seeing more more flooding more intense storms uh obviously i understand you're you're going through quite a heat wave this year um what are your thoughts on that is that going to lead to more need for your services in the future? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, we can we could probably track the catastrophes here, and well, they do, the insurers do, definitely. Um, and I think they are definitely getting more, more frequent. Um, but more than more frequent, I think they're getting more intense. And, uh, I mean, as I alluded to before, we've got Cyclone Omer just circling off... Uh, as of yesterday, I think it was 800 kilometres off the coastline of Queensland. But mm. not only is it um, more intense, for the first time, it's looking like it's coming further south, so away from the equator. So that means it's going to move into townships if it hits that are not ready for cyclones. Mm. So if it goes as low as the Gold Coast, every roof in the place will be gone because they're not oh. strapped down. They're not ready for it. <laughs> How have insurance rates, uh, have they been moving up significantly as a result of this, or are they still kind of in a holding pattern at this point? Uh, look, they did start to, um, particularly after the 2011 uh, Brisbane storms, because that was a major, major. In fact, 2011, when the storm hit Brisbane, we had nine concurrent catastrophes going on in the country. So oh. it was a bad year. Um but or it was a good year, depending on what side of the fence you're on, I guess. Yeah. But, <laughs> but um, the, the prices went up. But typically, you know, market pressure, what happens is someone else wants to cut their prices a bit and get their market share. So that, they haven't escalated, but they have in some areas of Australia where the insurers, I would say, are nervous that it's a frequent occurrence there. So, you know, there's a couple of towns I've been to and preached all the disaster recovery things to it. And one mayor stood there and said to me, Oliver, there'll be no use for your services. We've lost everything so many times. There's nothing sentimental left in this town. Wow. <laughs> I went, oh, great. <laughs> Just wasted half an hour of my time. <laughs> I'm curious. You mentioned coming to North America to get, you know, new ideas, go to trade shows, etc. What? Uh, what trade shows or conventions do you attend? I mean, it's obviously something you've got to pick and choose pretty carefully. You're not going to go to all of them. And I'm um, thinking maybe the American audience here might be curious to know what, which ones do you feel are most beneficial for you? Well, I think the RIA and the experience are, are good. Um, RIA, I think we've, we pretty well go to most of those. And the other one that um, I found personally really interesting is to go to the uh, um, Amsterdam mm -hmm. Cleaning Expo. At the it's, a, it's an absolute eye-opener. I mean, if you, if you go to that, I can almost guarantee you'll come back with something unique. Hmm. And for the listeners there, I mean, we all know if you can have something unique, you've got something to market, you've got a reason to go and talk to your customers. So yeah. highly recommend the Amsterdam cleaning show who does that clip do you know 
Well, it used to be um, it used to be part it, it done in in, in uh, association with the ISSA, and then they kind of split. So it, it's held at the Rye every year. Uh, been there many times, exhibited there many times, and it's. I agree with them. It's just a really really cool show. There's stuff there from from all over the world. It's amazing. Oh, we pulled up a little shot of some of your crew here. I'm sure you'd like to say uh, thanks to this to this fine-looking group. Oh, yeah. No, I'd always say thanks to all my group. Uh, you know, I think we've got nationally now there's about 350 employees between all the franchisees and us. And uh, as we were alluding to before, it's always hard to keep people, but uh, we've got a really, really good group. And I think the best thing we've got with our group is the empathy they've got and uh, they actually understand the insured. So when I'm looking for a good staff member, I'm looking for someone that wants to get paid to help someone, not just someone that wants to get paid. Looks like you've got a pretty decent uh, representation of women, at least in this photograph. Do you know offhand how many of your uh, staff are female? Gosh, I I would say probably 35 40%. Good. It's pretty high. Pretty high, and um, no, no disrespect to the sexes. I think in, in a lot of cases, they've got a better eye for detail. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> sure do. Cliff, let me let you uh, ask. We've got about four minutes to go here. I know you had a couple final questions for Oliver. Yeah, I, I did, uh, Oliver. Do you uh, come in contact with Belfour over there at all? Uh, I, no, is the short answer. Belfour okay. is here, but it's only... Um, I think it's a license of the name and it's a, a, a small contractor here. So no, we haven't really bumped into Belfour. I'm sure they'll come. Um, you know, they're a global giant in this industry and uh, they, mind you, they may look at it like others have looked at it and said, well, it's only 25 million. There's a lot of other people in the world. Uh, you know, I, th- I think maybe, maybe not, you know, I'm not sure if you heard that they've actually been acquired by a company in the United States called American securities and, yeah. Uh, so I'm just, you know, that may change what they do and, and how they do it, you know, and, and where they do it. So I just wasn't sure exactly, you know, what they were doing uh, in, in the United States. But, you know, my final question is, where do you see Steamatic, uh, you know, 10 years from now? Uh, I think um, Steamatic is definitely, well, Steamatic Australia and North America are really going to look towards to expand globally f- further. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we are in several countries, but um, fairly small footprint in some of those countries. But we're using those as uh, our stepping stones, I guess, to move into the global market in the large loss to, to do some of the Belfort sort of work. Um, there's plenty of it out there and there's plenty to share. And uh, so I would say in 10 years, I'd like to see that we have dominant uh, or at least offices in London and Singapore and working those, those regions from those hubs. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, it's a vision that I, I see and it's a vision that's obtainable. Sure. You know, Oliver, you mentioned earlier, I don't know, if, I can't recall if it was before the show started or, or right at the beginning that, you were doing some work in Africa and that just caught my attention. I'm, I, I'm of the impression that, you know, you said earlier, Australia is maybe five to six or 10 years behind the United States. What about Africa? Are you, um, over there, <laughs> there aren't yep. any other restoration companies. Is there a restoration industry in Africa? I'm just curious about that. I, I, Africa, I don't you- think, I don't think there probably there might be in some of the capitals. I don't think there's an industry there. Um, but to, to your point, yeah, it's it's pretty remote. To take, you know, one job we did there, for instance, we went as far as taking rubber bands with us. Mm. You know, that's how far our inventory control had to go down to. And quite frankly, that's what won us the job that we sh- demonstrated to our customer. We'd thought ahead. Because it's a different world and you literally, um, you won't be employing labor there because if you give them $10, they probably won't come back tomorrow. Hmm. So <laughs> you have to take everyone and everything with you. Interesting. And what part of Africa were you in? Uh, well, we've done a couple, but uh, Tanzania and we're also um, 
doing one in the Democratic Republic of Congo shortly, which wow. is, uh, well, we say we're doing one. It keeps politically changing. So we're not going in until we know we're safe. Yeah, that one is really, uh, really interesting there. You've got a lot of instability and uh, I don't know, is that where the, the Ebola breakout is or is that in? Uh, yes, it was. Yeah, not not near, not in the main town, but it was the Ebola was a breakout there. But I mean, the good thing is you're dealing with global customers to one of your questions earlier, you know, yeah. what takes you global. It's a global customer. It's a global underwriters. Um, and they understand that it's politically unstable. You just... You're not going yet. Just wait. <laughs> so. Before we go, is there anything that we missed that you'd like to add or just anything you'd like to get out to listeners before we wrap it up? And thanks again for staying or getting up so early to uh, join us on a Saturday morning in, uh, in Australia. Uh, look, I just like, thanks for the opportunity, but um, thank uh, my North American colleagues. I can assure you I wouldn't have the company I've got in Australia without Steamatic and just the colleagues that I meet at these conferences. So i got a lot of friends that are not steamatic as well. And uh, just thank you to the industry. I think it's an industry where we, um, we have to get on as a group, and that's how we succeed. And uh, we want to thank you for joining us, Oliver Throffball, for uh, joining us here at uh, such an inconvenient time, but we really appreciate having you and uh, look forward to hopefully meeting in person sometime. Thank you very much. Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Oliver Throffball, from the CEO of Stomatic of Australia, my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Uh, good job finding uh, an interesting guest, Cliff. Uh, very interesting. Uh, of course, to John, you got to have faith. Our engineer at the controls, most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. We'll be back next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.